will be in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And if you're just joining us, we're just working our way through this book. It is a wonderful story of an ordinary man that God calls to do an extraordinary thing. This man, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to a pagan king, but God put a burden on his heart to rebuild the wall around ancient Jerusalem that provided both practical protection for its inhabitants and also spiritual import in the fact that it allows them to resume temple worship and get their relationship with God back online during this time. They have just completed that work in 52 days. It is nothing short of a miracle. And now we turn a corner in the book and we begin to see uh, a revival, a renewal, that God is doing something amazing in the lives of these people. And we will learn from what he does in their midst. So let's pray for the Spirit's help and we'll get right to work. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate these texts to us. We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. All right, let's pick it up right here, beginning in verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, there are several things to notice here right off the bat. The first one is where they gathered. They gathered at the water gate. Now, when we hear that, when we're honest, we cannot help but think of Richard Nixon and the hotel and the cover-up and the scandal that brought down his presidency. Well, I assure you there's no connection there. But what this was, was this was likely the place, the broad place they called it, before what would become the house of the Lord, their rebuilt temple. So the fact that they gathered together in this place, and then when they asked for the book of God to be brought out, this communicates something very significant about the renewal and the revival that has taken place among these people. These are the same people, some of them, that have allowed their city to lie in waste for 141 years, basically didn't seem to give a hoot about the things of God, but now, because of God miraculously showing up in their midst, and more importantly, showing up in their hearts to turn them back toward him, they want to gather the people together in this place to hear from this book. And surely this shows that God is at work within them. Now, also, let's pay attention to who they asked to bring the book out in the first place. We see him mentioned there by name, and his name is Ezra. Now, this is the first time that he's come into the frame here in the story of Nehemiah, but he is a very important part of what God has been up to and will be up to in their city. Uh, he was a priest and a scribe, and he had returned to Jerusalem probably about 14 years before Nehemiah had gotten there, and he had been faithfully and uh, uh, plodding along, bringing God's people along to be at the place where they were. So clearly he was the perfect man for the job, a good complement to the, to the work that Nehemiah did. And this book that they are asking that would be brought out, <coughs> the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel, would have been uh, a section of the Bible for them. Now, there's a little bit of scholarly intramural debate on exactly which books uh, they would have been talking about here, but what is very clear is that they wanted to hear from God through God's word. 
And Ezra, of course, is very happy to oblige. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law of God before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And here's one of the things that we love about deep study of the Bible. That, again, kind of like verse 1, might seem like relatively insignificant detail, but it is very significant because it shows the evidence of grace within this community. It shows the renewing work of God and the revival that is taking place among them. Because for the men and the women to be there showed what a heightened premium they placed upon this event. Most times at this point, it would just be the men that got together to discuss this. The women had other responsibilities. They were caring for the home and so on and so forth. But here they are bringing together men and women. And it says also even the children that could understand. So they are essentially stopping the presses of everything that is happening in Jerusalem that day, gathering everyone together so that they can be a part of this thing that God is up to. And also, even the date here is significant. The first day of the seventh month. Now, this would have been the Jewish equivalent of New Year's Day. Now, New Year's Day in our culture often has a lot of bad baggage that comes with it. But at this time, they were basically saying, listen, we want to hear the right thing in the right place from the right person holding the right book, and we do want to do it on the right day. Everything about what is being communicated at this point highlights and showcases the renewed work of God in their lives. And look what happens in the next verse. And he, being Ezra, read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday <clears throat> in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Now, this is also significant in the fact that the amount of time that we're talking about here was likely between five and six hours now, some people might think that I preach for a long time or some of our other guys, but listen, we're getting off the hook easy compared to this day, five to six hours. And again, it highlights the importance, the premium, the importance that they are placing on hearing from God at this time. And so when you take all that together, that gives us our first principle, that God's people should be hungry for God's word. God's people should be hungry for God's word. Now listen to what the psalmist has to say that falls right in line with this vein. Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 14, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 72, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Now, what the psalmist is picking up on there, communicating from his own heart, it's very similar to what we see happening in Nehemiah's group of people, isn't it? It shows the evidence of grace, the renewing work of the Spirit of God in regard to the Word of God. And I think it provides us an opportunity to stop and to ask a couple of perhaps probing and challenging questions for ourselves. The first one being this. What is our posture toward the Word of God? Do we long to hear it like these people did? Do we want to be shaped by it, changed by it, reorganize our lives by it? Is it important enough to us that we get the whole city together in our lives, so to speak, so that we would hear what God has to say? 
And then the follow-up question would be, if it isn't, then why? What if we allowed to take precedence over hearing the Word of God? What if we turn to for a greater authority than what the Word of God can provide? Oh, friends, let's allow their example to challenge us, to convict us even, and to pull us along for the glory of God into greater depths of knowledge of God that comes from God's book, God's Word. Now, let's look on here in the next verse. Because we see that the people weren't simply hungry for the Word, they were something else as well. And it says, and all the people, all, all the ears, <coughs> and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And that word means to pay very close attention to. So second principle here is God's people should also be attentive to God's word. So hungry first and attentive second. These people weren't just physically present. They were also mentally present. And listen, the application here for us is obvious. And I know <coughs> that in our day and age, Though we have greater access to the Word of God uh, than probably anyone in the history of the world, we also have many, many more distractions. And even now, as we're watching this or listening to this, this can be the kind of thing where it is a fight and it is a war just to be able to dial in and to pay attention. And one of the things that i found that helps me uh, when someone else is preaching is I take notes. And I know that may seem fundamental or kind of a, well, duh, kind of statement. But what I've found with note-taking is that it requires me to focus. It makes me dial in. It makes me say, hey, even if I've heard this before, even if I've preached this passage before or I know about this, God is saying something new and fresh to me in this moment, and I need to pay attention to it. Now, of course, the meaning doesn't change, the passage doesn't change, but the insight for where I am in that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to put particular truths on my heart to encourage me, to challenge me, to comfort me in a new and fresh way, and I've found that being able to write those down or even type those down on my phone, it makes me focus, it makes me attentive, and it also makes me attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing in that moment in my life and in the life of my family. So let me ask you a good, simple question there. Do you take notes? And again, I'm not here to beat you up about that, but my challenge to you would be, it might help you if you don't, because it makes you have to focus. It makes you have to reflect. It makes you put yourself in a place to be attentive so you really can hear from God and to really feel the love of God and the presence of God and the nearness of God. And hopefully, even in the midst of that, as you're taking those notes, you get to the point where you experience such wonder, such a glory of God, that perhaps the thumbs even have to stop. And you just bask in the greatness of who God is and what he has done for us through Christ and what he has done in situations like this, how he takes ordinary people, and does extraordinary things, and the world is changed because of it. So the people were hungry for God's word, <coughs> they were attentive to God's word, and watch what happens next. It says, And Ezra the scribe 
stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathetai, Shema, and Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkai, and Masai on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbinadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. So let's picture this if we can. <coughs> They've built some kind of uh, simple riser set here. A wooden tower that was uh, significant enough for Ezra and 13 of these men that I'll have to apologize to in heaven for woefully butchering their names, but they were there to show solidarity and agreement, and he was bringing the word so that everyone could hear it. I think this was probably practical in the sense that they didn't have a PA system and so on, but the symbolic uh, value here of elevating the word of God, we want to lift up uh, this book and what it represents, that was very significant as well. And look what happens when they do. <clears throat> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So third principle there, God's people should also have appropriate respect for God's word. I heard the story one time of a preacher he was talking about how he had uh, he was friends with a guy who was Muslim. And he had gone to this guy's house. And of course, in, in that faith system, their book is called the Quran. And uh, devout Muslims are quite serious about the Quran. And he said he had the Quran sitting on his desk. And there, it was kind of messy. There's a bunch of papers and uh, so on, other books. And the guy apologized for his workspace being um, what it was and, and, and in disarray. And then in the midst of that, he put the papers together, he stacked up the books, and then as a final uh, act, he put the Quran on top of all the books. And my friend asked him and inquired and said, you know, why did you do that? And he went on to talk about uh, that he never put anything on top of the Quran, that it was sacred and wonderful and holy, and it sits on top of things. Nothing sits upon it. And my friend was talking about how he was very convicted in that moment. Because how is it that many of us, and certainly many people who even claim to love and prize the Bible, how do we treat the Bible? Well, sometimes we don't even know where it is. Uh, maybe we don't even read it on a regular basis. And here this individual who has a book that is not the truth, but in fact leading people away from the truth, is going out of his way to sit it in the place of greatest prominence. And many of us who claim to love and believe the Bible, we don't even know where ours is sometimes. And again, I don't say that to beat up on us, but I say that because passages like this, when we see what these people did, it wasn't enough just to build the wall. It wasn't enough just to get the people together <coughs> to hear from God's book. They built a platform specifically for the reading of the book. When we see that kind of respect, that kind of appropriate exaltation, it should say something to us and we should reflect and we should take a step back and say, you know what? If the book of God was so prominent in their lives, how prominent is it in my life? Do I read it? Do I want to read it? Do I want to be attentive to it? Am I hungry for it? Do I place the kind of appropriate respect on it that I should?
Friends, these are the kinds of questions that a passage like this allows us to engage. Now, that wasn't all that took place. That respect gave way to something else. Let's take a look at it. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Now, that statement you may recognize from the New Testament as well. Uh, it basically means it's true. We believe it. And the fact that they said it twice, anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, it's there to show emphasis. So it would be basically them saying, we believe it. We believe it. So again, another evidence of grace in their life uh, to, to show that, that God was truly at work in their hearts. But that's not all. Read on. It says also, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, the notion here of the lifting of hands, you see this throughout uh, the Psalms. Uh, it, it is also uh, seen as a sign of response and submission to the Word of God. Uh, we know this kind of as a universal sign uh, in our culture, if you ever get captured by, you know, the police or some warring nation or something, what do people do? They, they, they lift their hands and surrender. And in many ways, that's, that's exactly what is being communicated here. Uh, it's a sign of praise and it's a sign of, God, you're in charge and, and we want to be about what you're about. And then also they're, they're bowing their heads and worshiping the Lord. Uh, it's the same kind of idea uh, of surrender and recognizing the holiness, the greatness, uh, the worth of God, and they want to respond uh, appropriately. So when you, when you take all this together, it gives us our next principle here, and that is that God's people should respond to God's work. Now, in this passage, we see that these things are, are very physical. You got lifted hands, you got bowed bodies, you got faces to the ground, you got voices lifted, amen, amen. And all of those responses are still appropriate and, and okay in our day. And uh, we need to respond in some way. Um, that, that's not necessarily me saying, hey, everybody has to say amen when one of our preachers says something great. But you know what? That's okay if people say that. Because again, what is it? It's not just for show. It's not just some weird paroxysm that church people do. It is a communication of affirmation that I'm behind what was said. Uh, that is true, and I'm about that, and I want uh, to communicate that. But the, the real point that we're driving for here that I think we need to follow in their footsteps is this idea of responding to the Word of God. And quite frankly, the greatest response to the Word of God that goes even deeper than what we're talking about here is what? It's obedience. You know, you look at what Jesus teaches in the New Testament, and he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And there are 10,000 things that God gives us in the Bible uh, that, that the right response for us is to simply obey whatever it is that he tells us to do. It could be in regard to how we uh, manage money, uh, invest in the, the gospel of Jesus going forward. It could be in how we uh, uh, deal with our marriages and, and how we need to love and serve one another and uh, husbands lead sacrificially and so on and so forth. It could be in regard to our parenting. 
It can be in regard to how we work our jobs as under, unto the Lord and not unto men. But the point is that we as God's people need to respond to God's word, whatever it is that he is speaking to in those moments. And again, think about the context of what is happening here. This same group of people had allowed their city to lie in shambles, no temple, no formalized worship for almost 150 years, and now everything has changed. God has shown up. God's book has been exalted. God's man has been put on a platform to tell them the truth, and now they are responding to five to six hours of somebody reading the Bible to them. Oh, friends, that that's what we want. We want to be those kinds of people that respond to God's word. And look at what happens next. It says also Jeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aku, Shabbatai, Hodai, Masari, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and a group of men and the Levites helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, this is very important. And it's also very important in talking a little bit about how and why we do what we do the way we do it here at Refuge. But let me give you the principle first, and then I'll unpack it. Principle would be something like this, that God's people should dig deeply into God's word. You know, it reminds me of something that I heard growing up when it came to feeding infants. There was an old statement that said this, it's not how much milk you get on the baby that counts, but how much you get in the baby. And the point that they're trying to make there is you can have all the great sustenance and great milk for this child uh, in the world, but if you don't get it into the right place where it can really do something and help that child, well, it's going to be malnourished and have all kinds of problems. Friends, the same is true for us and for God's people throughout all of history when it comes to the Word. To think about this in terms that we've talked about today, it's not simply enough just to own a Bible. It's not enough just to know where that Bible is. I would even say it's not enough simply to read the Bible and then shut it real fast and run away. We've got to dive deep. We've got to dig in. We've got to excavate the truth that is there and by the Spirit of God, for the glory of God, have that word sink deeply into us where we can be fully convinced of the love of God that he has shown to us in Christ, of the glory of God that he wants to manifest in our lives, and that we would be thoroughly changed and transformed. And that doesn't happen with simply surface contact. That happens by digging in. And see, these ancient Israelites knew this. Look back in your text there. It said that you had all these people, again, another group of people I'll have to apologize to for butchering their names, and this other group of men that helped the people understand the law. And so what the commentators think is happening here 
is that uh, in, in, uh, with what's going on in the next part here, they read from the book and then uh, Ezra here, they gave the sense so that the people could understand it, that basically what was happening in here is he would read a passage and then he would, the gave the sense means literally to break it down. He would explain it. Uh, fancy church word for this is he would exposit it. He would help them understand what the passage was about and then what the commentators think was happening here is that the, 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 these Levites were likely milling about in this gathered congregation of people answering their questions. So the way I like to think about that here, if you want to think about it in refuge terms, is that myself or somebody else stands up in some capacity on Sunday morning and we read the book and we give the sense. That's what I'm doing right now. That's why I spend all this time studying during the week, because I don't want to simply talk for a little while and give you like two little sprinkles of scripture. We do it exactly the opposite. We take a lot of time explaining this passage and then making application and illustration and really digging down deep into it. It's because of passages just like this. This is what God's pastors and preachers have been doing for centuries, digging into the Bible and explaining it, and then having these guys come along behind and kind of answer the questions and tease it out. Now, what would that look like in our context? Well, part of it, it looks like community group. The part of the reason why we have uh, further discussion uh, about the sermons in community group is because we want to take as many runs of this passage, whatever it is that week, as we can. So you hear it explained, you hear it applied, then we talk about it again uh, and say, you know, what further questions do we have? What are you struggling with? How can I support you? So on and so forth. Those are kind of like the Levites in this passage. And then, of course, if you have further questions, then shoot me a text or send me an email or uh, one of your other pastors. And, and man, we'll, we'll try to help you however we can. But this is what we want. We want a deep dive into God's book so that we can fully realize our potential is God's people. And then beyond that, beyond the, the Sunday and the community group ministry, uh, this, is, this very passage is part of why we do uh, women's ministry the way that it's done in this church, that there's you know a, a, a deep study of scripture and a real delving in there. Uh, that's why we have thrive groups so that we can further take that down the road. That's why we do men's ministry the way that we do it. It's a very Bible-built ministry. It's the same thing we do with student ministry, children's ministry, all the ministries. We want to be about this model of ministry uh, for the glory of God and for making disciples that make disciples. So I think the questions that we should ask here would need to fall kind of in this constellation. Let's start with the personal first. Is it your desire to delve deeply into God's Word? Or are you content with simply a surface understanding? Now, let me be clear here. We are not talking about Bible trivia. We are not talking about information for the sake of information. We are talking about information for the sake of transformation. That's what we want. And that's what I want you to want, that we would seek to dive deeply into God's Word so that we might know God deeply and intimately and be 
more and more transformed into his image and more and more on mission for him. And church-wide, let me just encourage us all, let's take full advantage of all the opportunities that we can to dive deeply into God's word. Listen, we know everybody can't do everything. There are people, jobs and all, we, we get all that. But whatever you can do, friend, take full advantage of what the church has to offer. Take full advantage of good podcasts and books beyond that and so forth. Because at the end of the day, we don't simply want you to learn about Nehemiah. We want you to learn about Jesus. We want you to know not just about Ezra, but we want you to know Christ deeply, intimately, powerfully, transformatively. That's what we want for you. And the primary way that we're going to get in that direction is by following in the footsteps of what these people have shown us today, by being hungry for God's Word, by being attentive to God's Word, by responding to God's Word, by being respectful of God's Word, by digging deeply into God's Word, because the deeper we go into the Word, the more real Jesus is going to become to us. The more precious Jesus is going to become to us. The more deeply we're going to see our own sin and Jesus' full and appropriate payment for our sin. Because again, we want you to love Nehemiah, but we really want you to love Jesus. And some of us who are watching this today you hear this, and God is using this passage to put the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in front of you. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background is. You need to know that God will welcome you today. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, Jesus will save you. And some of you, you're hearing this for the first time, and I want to ask you to come to Christ I want to ask you to admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus lived the perfect life and died the substitute's death for you and gloriously rose again, and I want you to commit your life to him. And if that's stirring in your heart today, oh friends, I ask that you would put your faith in Christ and that you would reach out to us. Talk to us in person or shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com, and we want to help you on your new journey with Jesus. And for those who've already made that turn, friends, let me ask you today, what is it that God is saying to you through this passage? Is he challenging you, maybe even convicting you into a deeper walk with his word? Is he encouraging you in some way that maybe we touched on here, but it springboarded into something else? Friends, whatever it is, Right now, in this moment, let's not waste it. Let's go before the Lord and let's ask for what only God can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and your word. We pray that you would use it for your glory. We pray that you would stir us up toward love and good deeds because of this time that we spend together in your word. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.